As we've been looking at, uh, well, starting in this section in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, where there's really uh, a focus on the miracles that Jesus does, we looked last week at uh, all over Scripture to see kind of this uh, a biblical theology of the gift of miracles. Let me remind you, and especially if you weren't here, God is at work among us. He is a miracle-working God, but He gave the, op- the ability to do miracles uh, at will to the hands of people who were authorized to, to speak on his behalf. And so from, from Moses and Joshua to Elijah and Elisha to Jesus and the apostles, the scriptures tell us that they were able to do the things they were able to do as credentials. Uh, it was God validating them as his messengers, as those who were authorized to speak to him. But as we look at these miracles that Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 8 today, these three that we'll look at, It becomes very easy to think, well, if Jesus can heal me, then it stands to reason that he ought to heal me. And what do we do when we've prayed for years for ourselves or our spouse or our children or our loved ones, when we desperately need a miracle and God does not provide that miracle? We might be prone to be disappointed or discouraged, to think that maybe he doesn't care about us as much as he does others. But I think what we need to understand and why we spent so much time looking at these things yesterday is that the, or last week rather, is that the miracles that Jesus did had a far greater purpose than just healing people of their sicknesses and their diseases. They, they really were to show us One, as we saw last week, that he was authorized by God not only to speak on behalf of God, but to redeem us from our sin, from our disobedience to God, but also to show us who he is and really to offer us something better than healing. What he offers us through all of these is himself. I remember um, when I was a kid, you know, I've shared before that I never remembered a time when my dad lived at home, but Sunday afternoons, he would often come and, and visit. And frequently, he would bring a gift, um, some kind of gift to, to give me. And there was one day, I remember, he pulled up outside of the condo we were living in at the time. I couldn't have been more than six years old. I, I only have a handful of memories of my dad, but uh, but this one I remember clearly, and he got out of the car, and I came walking up to him, and I said, Dad, what did you bring me? And he said, I brought myself. And I was disappointed. I didn't know he would be gone and dead within a year. It was an utter failure on my part to think that what he could offer me was better than himself. And very quickly from that, I would have given everything back that he had ever given me just to have him and to be able to have that relationship with him. And if we approach Jesus in such a way that says he can get me out of trouble, he can get me out of sickness, he can get me out of whatever mess I've created for myself and, you know, I've pursued my own things, my own ways, I've created a mess, but... Man, I think Jesus is going to come through for me on this one. And then when he doesn't, it's really easy for us to go, well, what are you doing, Lord? 
But really what he wants, us to, wants to offer us through these, what the, the, the wonder of the gospel is not just that God gives us salvation. In fact, what he gives us in terms of salvation is himself. He gives us a relationship, an incredibly intimate relationship. So intimate, in fact, that when the disciples don't want Jesus to, to go as he's predicting his own death, he says, no, it's better for you if I go because the helper will come. And while the disciples lived with Jesus, the Spirit lives in us. He gives us not only knowledge to himself, but relationship with himself. He really, what Jesus is, what all of these miracles have existed for is to show us who Jesus is and that he offers himself to us. Understanding the purpose of miracles is going to be important for the next two chapters because they, they really do reveal the credentials of Jesus. And these three that we're going to look at today, they show us a couple of things more than just Jesus' credentials. And I want to keep that in view. Yes, these are the credentials of Jesus, that he is the one authorized to grant us salvation, but I want to see some of the other things that they show us as well. They teach us something about faith, and we're going to see that, but more than that, they teach us something about the power of the Messiah. There's three common factors in all three of these healings, and it's why I've chosen to group them together today, not just because we're trying to move a little faster through the text, but because there is some commonality as well. Uh, Here's the three common factors of these three healings that we'll look at today. Number one, Jesus dealt with the lowest needs. These are not your points on your outline. We'll get to those in, in a moment here. But Jesus dealt with the lowest needs of the people as an indication that he could deal with their greatest needs. And so often, the, the conversation starts out over physical things. I have, I have leprosy. I have a, a servant who uh, needs healing. Uh, my mother-in-law is sick. All of these needs, Jesus doesn't just go, well, I, I understand that that's your felt need, but I've got something else I want to offer you. No, he first offers them the need that is before them, And then turns the conversation to spiritual things. And so he meets their lowest needs as an indication that he can meet their greatest needs. Number two, Jesus responded, I believe in all three, though the third one's a little less clear, uh, I believe that Jesus responded to direct appeals for their healing. In, In the first case, the leper approaches Jesus and asks him, to heal him. In the second case, the centurion, and if we understand um, the, the contrasting um, stories of this in the other gospels, the centurion is probably actually making this request uh, through others as well. Um, but the centurion requests that Jesus heal his servant. And then it's most likely that Peter brought Jesus to his home to heal his mother-in-law. And so Jesus responded to the direct appeals of people for their healing, again, either from the individual or from someone close to them. And so I think there's an indication here that we should be asking as well. And the third common factor is that Jesus healed those in all three who were, according to the day, the most lowly and unworthy people in society. You're going to have to give me a second to explain this, so don't get too upset. But he heals a leopard. He heals a a leopard. Did I say leopard? I mean, I guess he could heal a leopard. 
Um, but, but he healed a leper, not a leopard. He healed a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. There's the one that's going to require some explanation. But they, these were three of the lowliest people in consideration in that day. In fact, Jewish men often, the, the Jews prayed many prayers that were just wrote prayers, that they just spoke the same words over and over. And most Jewish men woke up in the morning and as part of their prayers said, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile or a woman. It was just the cultural reality of that day. And Jesus is breaking all of the cultural rules. Leprosy, uh, and we'll just maybe get into this a little bit now so we can understand this. Leprosy was probably the most feared disease of the day. It was probably not just an individual thing like we categorize leprosy today, which still exists. It was probably a whole general category of contagious skin diseases, but it left people un. Uh, disconnected from society. You could not enter a walled city if you had leprosy. You had to, if you entered an unwalled city, cry out unclean before you. Nobody would touch a leper because you did not want to contract the disease that they had. And it was an obvious disease. It was not something you could hide or covered up. It was, it was fairly gross and, and uh, hideous. And so uh, these people were completely and utterly rejected. And then, of course, Gentiles. We know that the Jews were uh, really, in many ways, just a racist people. They didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles. And so the centurion would have been a Roman and thus a Gentile. And then lastly, a woman who was considered to be lowly and, uh, and unimportant in society. And so Jesus not only deals with their lowest needs as an indication that he can deal with their greatest, he also responds to their direct appeals, and he deals with people who are in that day considered the lowly of society. So let's consider now from these three miracles, three demonstrations of Jesus' power, three demonstrations of Jesus' power. The first demonstration, uh, that is the healing of the leper, is a demonstration that Jesus has the power to cleanse the faithful. The power to cleanse the faithful. Look with me again at the first four verses. When he came down from the mountain, we don't know that this was immediately after Jesus came down from the mountain and from teaching the Sermon on the Mount, but at some point, having come down, the great crowds considered to follow him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Now, this would have been uh, incredibly unusual. That's why there is, uh, in, in large part, a display of the leper's faith here. He didn't have a full understanding of who Jesus was or his character, as we'll see. But this guy is bold. A leper coming up to anyone and asking anything would have been entirely against all of the cultural rules of that day. And yet this leper comes to Jesus and kneels before him literally prostrates himself before him and says, Lord, if you will, and there's where the misunderstanding comes in, you can make me clean. He understands that Jesus is able to cleanse him of his leprosy. He's not sure that Jesus is willing. Now, I don't think this means that Jesus was stingy in his miracles. We know from the Gospels that Jesus was healing people at an incredible rate. It's just that the leper understands that the power to heal him is not up to him. It's not, it's not in his control. 
Jesus doesn't heal the leper because of the leper's faith. Jesus heals the leper because it is within his character and his power to do so. And so this leper is kind of saying, Lord, I don't know if you will, but I'm certain that you can. You can heal me. And then what we see next is really incredible because the one thing you didn't ever want to have happen was to be touched by a leper. Because you might, in fact, would likely contract the leprosy that the leper had. And so the lepers would certainly not touch anybody, as we've already talked about. And they were completely disconnected from society in that way. And, this, and Jesus follows his, his typical, though not exclusive, pattern of touching somebody. This probably shocked the leper as Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And so for you and me... Maybe this was particularly seen in recent years. We're, we, we have a tendency to be afraid of those who might get us sick. Because in this fallen world, sickness passes from the sick to the well. But not so with Jesus. His touch, far from resulting in his sickness, cleanses the leper. And he simply responds with, I will. Lord, if you will, you can. And Jesus says, he reaches out, he touches him, and he says, I will be clean. And immediately, immediately, not in months to come, not in days to come, but immediately his leprosy was cleansed. This man likely had a hardly unrecognizable face. As he's probably got advanced leprosy, he probably has skin sloughing off his body. And immediately he is restored and cleansed. And Jesus says to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Well, Jesus calls him to obey the law according to Leviticus 14, where if you had leprosy or something considered leprosy and you were healed, you had to go present yourself to the priest and be examined. And so Jesus calls him immediately for obedience. He sees that Jesus is able. He learns that Jesus is willing. He is cleansed immediately from the touch of Christ. And the response is then to obey. It's really not so different for us, is it? That when we see, not just physically, but spiritually, that Christ is able to cleanse us from our sin, that when, when by faith we see that he is both able and willing, when we trust him for such cleansing and we find that anybody who ever comes to him and says, Lord, make me clean, and I'm speaking in a spiritual sense here, there is no one who will ever come to Christ and ask for forgiveness who will not receive it. He is always willing to heal those who will put his, their faith in him. And so when we find that, that we do this, is our response, when we come to Christ by faith and trust him, and he cleanses us of our sin and our unrighteousness, a far greater miracle than cleansing from leprosy, is not the command on us to obey as well. Now, we don't obey with the, the Levitical law, 
We don't obey the ceremonial portions of the law. We don't obey the societal portions of the law, but we're still bound by the moral law. And there are plenty of commandments in Scripture, but our response is to obey. Maybe if we zoom in even a little quicker or closer on this particular text, the call might be to, uh, to love the unlovely. Obedience for us might, might look like loving the unlovely or accepting the rejected. Comforting the hurting, caring for the orphan or the widow or the prisoner. Is there something that you might see in someone that would tempt you to think that they are unclean and therefore unwelcome here? I mean, it's a super tiny thing. Like, it really, it really doesn't matter in the, in the big scheme of things. So uh, please understand that this would be the, the, the tiniest of issues. But I was talking to somebody this week, and I kind of made the comment of, uh, I'd love to just put some ashtrays outside. Just as a statement. You know, what, what, kind, of, what kind of statement would we be making there? What, what if somebody comes in who is homeless and hasn't bathed in quite some time? Or is desperately desperate for their next high or drink? Or, or what if they're dressing in clothing that does not match their God-given gender? Are they beyond Christ's touch? Are they beyond our touch? Will our obedience take us to a place where we are willing to love the unlovely. Notice Jesus doesn't just say, I love him and leaves him there. But he loves him right where he's at. Secondly, the second demonstration we see is a demonstration that Jesus has the power to answer the faithful. Jesus has the power to answer the faithful. He has the power to cleanse the faithful. But here we see he has the power to answer the faithful. Uh, notice what happens next. When he entered Capernaum, this is uh, a city next to the Sea of Galilee, a centurion came forward to him. Now, this would have been somewhat unusual. At this point in time, there are no Roman garrisons anywhere in Israel except potentially here because of Herod Antipas, and he had some things worked out with Rome. But there wasn't a whole lot of Roman soldiers and centurions around in that day. Uh, there were some, but there were not many. And so it's probably only in Capernaum that this could happen. And this centurion comes to Jesus uh, and says to him and appeals to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. Um, the, the language here is, is interesting. There, there could almost be a little bit of affection in there. We see from some of the other Gospels that uh, even the Jews who knew this guy, uh, they, they believed him to be a worthy man. Some of the Jews said to Jesus, he has built our synagogues, he is a worthy man. Even the Jews loved this Gentile and wanted uh, there to be, wanted Jesus to do this miracle for him. And so it's a little unusual at all that a centurion would be um, would be advocating for a servant because servants were property. I mean, people were property. You could discard unwanted children, even alive, just to die in trash heaps. 
Servants would be driven as hard as they possibly could, and then the moment they could not perform work anymore in the Roman Empire, they would be kicked out of their owner's home with no provision for them whatsoever. You would work until you literally broke, and then you would be cast aside. And so to see that this centurion is advocating for a servant who very likely could have been a Jewish servant even, based upon their location, is unusual. It's a very unusual circumstance. In other words, we might call this centurion a good guy. He says, Lord, my servant is paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And that language is strong. This, this guy is miserable. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, this is the typical pattern of what Jesus does. He goes to where the people are who need healed. He touches them. He says that they will be healed, and they are healed. But this centurion replies, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. There's a humility in that. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Now, this is a brilliant statement. He's not just saying, hey, I'm in charge of some people. I understand how this works. No, he's saying, I'm a man under authority. He's saying, my authority is derived, and then I exercise authority over those who are under me. What this centurion is saying is not that he has his own authority, but that he bears a portion of authority delegated from Caesar that he then uses to, uh, to, to have authority over the men under him. This centurion is recognizing the very thing we've been talking about, about the miracles of Jesus being his credentials. I too am a man under authority. Jesus, just like I am under the authority of Caesar, who has delegated authority to me over my people, you have delegated authority by God the Father. And you have the authority to to use that uh, over those whom you have authority. In other words, the centurion not only understands that Jesus is a man sent by God, but he understands that the servant is under the authority of Jesus. And so because of this immense power that Jesus yields, this immense authority as one delegated and authorized by God, he, he says... I have soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And he's saying, look, Jesus, you don't have to come, under my, come to my house. I think this is an incredible demonstration of faith from the centurion, because it does break not the, the only pattern, but the typical pattern of how Jesus heals. He goes, he touches, he speaks, they're healed. The centurion has seen probably Jesus do that repeatedly. He knows Jesus has the authority. But I don't think it's a demonstration. I don't think it's, it's something that he's seen Jesus do before because Jesus marvels at this man's faith. He simply says, look, Jesus, I know who you are. I know how this works. You have authority that's derived from the Father and you can exercise it whenever and wherever. You just say go and it goes. And when Jesus heard this, verse 10, he marveled and said to those who follow him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And right here, we begin, well, we don't begin, we continue a theme that goes on through the book of Matthew 
And that is that the kingdom that Christ came to initiate was not just a kingdom for the Jews, but a kingdom, a salvation for the whole world. And and so Matthew is putting on display for us this faith of a Roman centurion, a Gentile nonetheless, with whom there is no one in Israel that Jesus has found as much faith. And then Jesus, again, switches the conversation to spiritual things. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Who is it that will come from east and west? Remember, this is the, the theme is anywhere you go, doesn't matter if you come from the east, doesn't matter if you come from the west, doesn't matter if you come from Rome, it doesn't matter if you come from Assyria, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, if you have this kind of faith, this faith in Christ that he is who he says he is, that he has the power to save, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In other words, hey, there's some in the nation of Israel who, who don't have, they're not going to believe. They don't have this kind of faith. It shouldn't surprise us because they pursued it the wrong way. And and I think we need to understand something about the way they pursued it. Jesus is saying there's going to be many Gentiles like this centurion who have saving faith, who come from east and west, who will be in the kingdom at, at the table, at the banquet table with Abraham and Isaac. And this is good news because that's the vast majority of us in this room. But many of the sons of Israel, many of the sons of the kingdom, this is a reference to Israel, they'll be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why is it that the Jews that he's referring to don't have that kind of saving faith? I think Paul gives us a clue in Romans 9, verses 30 through 33, where he says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. He expects an affirmative answer here. Yes, the Gentiles, like this centurion, who weren't even seeking salvation from Jesus, they weren't even waiting for the Messiah, they have received that salvation, because they received it by faith. Verse 31 of Romans 9, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law? Again, he wants us to say, yes, they did not succeed. Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Why is Jesus telling us that some of Israel is not going to believe while this Gentile centurion has displayed faith worthy of Jesus marveling at? It's because they were pursuing it by works. They were trying to earn it. They were trying to be righteous for themselves. The centurion, in great contrast to that, says, I'm I'm just an unworthy guy. You, You shouldn't even come to my house. But I know who you are. Just say the word, and he'll be healed. The same is true for us. When we approach Jesus 
trying to earn our salvation, trying to work for our salvation, trying to add obedience to faith to be good enough to be accepted by God, we're striving for something that we can never earn on our own. But like the centurion, we have to come to Jesus and say, not because of anything I've done, but because of what you have done. You can heal me. I wonder if there's anybody in this room today who's been trying to seek out their own salvation by being good enough. If I go to church enough, if I give enough, if I work hard enough, if I'm a good enough leader, good enough father, good enough mother, whatever it is, if I keep the Ten Commandments, then God will approve of me. But the reality is, from now till eternity, through eternity, there is and always will be only one reason for which God finds us good enough, and that is Jesus Christ. He has to be good enough for us. We have to come to him. But Jesus answers, getting back to our point, he answers the request. There's no indication that Jesus responded because of the centurion's faith. Jesus never looks at anybody and says, well, you didn't have enough faith. The centurion did. I'm going to do what he, what, what he asked for, but you didn't have enough faith, so I'm not going to respond to you. There's no indication that Jesus did it because of the centurion's faith, just in response to the centurion's request. It wasn't the faith of the centurion that compelled Jesus. It was Jesus' character, though he marveled at the faith of the centurion. So Jesus not only has the power to cleanse the faithful, as he did the leper, he has the power to answer the faithful according to their requests. This should be an indication for us of the importance and the necessity of prayer. And thirdly, he has the power to restore completely. The third demonstration of Jesus' power in this this set of three miracles is that Jesus has the power to restore completely. We see now that Jesus comes to Peter's house, uh, probably again at the invitation of Peter. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his, that is Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. Now, uh, we've understood a little bit about leprosy. Fever was not understood in that day to be something that was the byproduct of something else. It was thought to be its own disease. So we understand that if I get a virus, I get a fever, or if I have an infection, I get a fever, that the fever is a byproduct of some other condition. That was not the case in Jesus' day. Fever was a sickness of its own, and it was one from which people did not often recover. The, the health care and the sanitation in that day was not good. There was no antibiotics. Fever was a bad thing. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. When Jesus heals, whether it's the leper or whether it's the centurion's servant who at that very hour was healed, the leper who was instantaneously or completely healed, or Peter's mother-in-law whose healing was so complete that what she did was not recover for the next week, but she got up and began to serve. 
She was instantaneously and wholly and completely healed. This is the way Jesus heals. He has the power physically and spiritually to restore completely. I love the fact that there's no fanfare. There's no prolonged recovery. There's no gimmicks. There's no discernible formula to Jesus' healings. Like, man, if I just do things exactly the way he did, you know, if I just get this this uh, series of events and incantations just right, maybe I can heal somebody too. There's none of that. There's nothing distinguishable about the formula of Jesus' healings because the power isn't in what he did. The power was in who he was. So he heals her instantly, and she begins to get up and show or, and serve Jesus. We then get these closing verses that turn the conversation once again from physical things to spiritual things, from the lowly things to the eternal things. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now this is a quote of the lengthy passage we read during the music today of Isaiah 53, which is why we opted to read the whole passage today. Because most often, uh, Thad, I think I shared before, gave a great analogy of this when we were doing relational elder training. These, these pithy quotes uh, of Old Testament uh, passages usually refer to the larger passage. I think the example you used was if I were to say, oh, say, can you see? You know, or I pledge allegiance. You would know the, the whole context of what I was referring to, whether that was the song or to the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, I think what's going on here when Matthew says this was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases, he's referring back to Isaiah 53, to this servant who would be beaten and marred beyond human semblance but who bore our sickness, who bore our iniquities, who bore our disease, who, who's, who, who the chastisement that was upon us came upon him. We, we have to take the whole of that passage of Isaiah 53 and understand that that's what's going on here. His ability to take our our sickness, our illness, and our disease is an indication, a proof to us that what he really came was to bear our iniquities, our sins. The conversation gets turned once again to spiritual things. And so we're shown that Jesus' ability to heal physically is really about spiritual healing points us, rather, to his ability to heal spiritually. That his sinless life, when we trust him, becomes our sinless life. His death and condemnation on the cross becomes our death and condemnation. His life becomes our life when we trust him by faith and not by works. But the reality is, these physical healings took place to show us that Jesus offered something much more. That he could offer forgiveness of sin. That he could offer restoration to God. Should the same not be true for the church? 
Sometimes meeting lesser needs shows that we can offer answers to bigger things. James Gleason, uh, he's the president of the CV Northwest, the denomination we're, uh, we're part of. He says, uh, has said often that, that uh, service is currency for influence. I love that little pithy statement, that when we're willing to serve, we're, we're, we're making deposits that give us an ability to influence. Sometimes meeting lesser needs as a church, shows that we can meet greater needs, that we have the answers to bigger things. So what is the church to do? Do we meet earthly physical needs or do we share the gospel? And there is a debate about this. I heard somebody say yes. Was that you? That's the right answer. But there is a debate in evangelicalism right now swirling around the two. And it's not a new debate, by the way. Which are allowable? No, we don't do any community service. We don't meet any physical needs. We've been given the gospel to transform communities. And that's really, really important. And then on the other side, there's like, well, let's not worry about sharing the gospel because salvation is setting people free from political oppression. That's really what the gospel is. And we were like, no, that's, that's not what the gospel is. Can we not serve people? Can we not stand up for injustice? Can we not care for the broken and the hurting in the same way that Jesus did and then turn the conversation to, to physical things? That's really the better answer. I think that there's potential in trying to, f- to balance out those two things, serving the world around us and sharing the gospel with the world around us, social good and evangelism. I think there's three potential errors that we could run into. Error number one is to forget matters of social concern and to think that all we should do is share the gospel. It's true that, that uh, we have something better to offer. But sometimes meeting the basic needs allows us to turn the conversation to more important things. Jesus did it and and we can too. Error number two is forgetting matters of spiritual concern. Serving the needs of the people without sharing the gospel. The the danger here is is that it becomes really easy to, to let one placate our conscience about the other. It would be really easy for me to say, I'm going to go serve a meal at the Christian Aid Center, and then afterwards to tell people it's outreach. It's, there's nothing wrong with serving a meal at the Christian Aid Center. But until the gospel has been shared, that Jesus lived and died for our sins, and that if we trust him that, that we too can be, that we can be saved and forgiven of our sins, there's no outreach. There's no, there's no evan, evangelism in that. And so it, it, it's really easy to do socially good things. The, the response is instant. Sometimes evangelism takes decades of prayer and begging God to work. Whereas like I can go serve somebody today and instantly see the good I did. But if I use social good to placate my conscience about my responsibility given by God to share the gospel, then that can be dangerous as well. The Lausanne Covenant states about this balance between the two, that evangelism itself 
is the proclamation of the historical biblical Christ as Savior and Lord with a view to persuading people to come to him and per- come to him personally and so be reconciled to God. That's what evangelism is. Evangelism is telling people who Jesus is and what he has done and trying to persuade them to come to him personally and be reconciled by God. And we have to do that. We all have a responsibility to do that. But we also have a responsibility to meet needs. And so we need to do both without confusing the two. There's a great danger in this, by the way, when we begin to contemplate our or contemplate, when we begin to um, placate our consciences on the matter of evangelism with social good, with social concern. There's a Taylor Swift song that's uh, out that I think is incredibly insightful of a whole generation. I've, I made that statement in a Bible study the other day, and people were like, what are you talking about? And then I explained it, and they're like, wow, that's amazing. But one line in this song She says, did you hear my covert narcissism I disguise as altruism? It would be really, really easy to disguise our own narcissism, our own works, seeking to be seen as good by God and others as altruism. When really what we're trying to do is impress people, to say, whether it's before the Lord or one another or maybe even just in our own hearts. Look at me. I did something good by serving somebody else. But we cannot simultaneously draw attention to our own glory and the glory of Christ. We will either seek his or we will seek ours but not both. And so as we think about balancing out social good and evangelism, we don't want to ignore one, we don't want to ignore the other, but we certainly don't want to disguise our covert narcissism as altruism. And then error number three is simply confusing the two. Doing something that's good for the world around us and calling it evangelism. That's usually the way it goes, but we just don't want to confuse the two. I used to work for a guy who used to say all the time, let's call a duck a duck. Let's just call a duck a duck. We don't have to try and, uh, and, and disguise our community service as evangelism because, well, this one isn't just good enough. Well, they both matter. We need to serve our communities. We need to do good to the hurting and the hopeless and the helpless around us. And we need to share the gospel with them. And so I just don't want to confuse the two. As a church, I want us to faithfully engage in sharing the gospel with those who don't know who Jesus is. And I want to faithfully serve those who need help. And I don't want to have a battle about which one is more important. Because scripture tells us they're both important. Jesus isn't like, well, I guess I could heal your leprosy, but I've got something much better for you. No, he says, okay, I will heal your leprosy, and I'll tell you I've got something much better for you. I'll take your sicknesses and your diseases so that I can show you that I also took your iniquity and your sin. So we have an opportunity for you, 
And I'm really, really excited to talk about this today. We're going to be talking about a few weeks. We're going to call it Food and Friends. This is an opportunity that kind of just dropped in our lap. Literally, I kid you not, uh, they came looking. We got a call, I can't remember the name of the gal who works for an organization called Communities and Schools at Green Park Elementary, and she said, I heard that as a church, you've been providing food bags for needy students at uh, Prospect Point. And we said, yes, we have. And there is, in fact, if you didn't know this, three organizations that do that. There's another church in town that does that here at Prospect Point. Uh, The PTA does that at Prospect Point, and we do. And so we're kind of on this rotation. And there's about 25 kids who really don't know where their meals are going to come from on a weekend. And so they just try and send them home with a food bag uh, so so that they can have food on the weekends. She said, I got 50 kids who need food and I don't have anybody helping me with food. I'm trying to find ways to get rice and beans, but they're really bored of it, <laughs> which is understandable. We cleared out the pantry that we had of all the food. We gave it to her. She took it. She gave it to those kids. And she said, you wouldn't believe how thrilled they were to get things like granola bars and fruit snacks. Maybe not the most nutritious things, but it it is what they asked for, and the kids had some fun with it. And so we have committed because we believe in you. And guys, can I just say, I'm I'm not blowing smoke here. I'm gonna get emotional. I'm so proud of you guys. I'm I'm so privileged to be here as your pastor because you know, when, when somebody comes in and says, I got 50 kids who need food and I'm not sure where it's coming from, can you help? I don't have to be like, well, let me go beg, borrow, and steal. I'm like, yeah, I got a church full of people who love this kind of thing. And so I'm like, yeah, we can, we can do that. And, and we started crunching some numbers this week, how much we're going to need for the year. And can I just say, it's way, way less than I thought. Not in terms of what, but in terms of the cost. So here's what we're going to need for a whole year. And and if you look at the slide, the top portion is food. So we're going to provide food two times a month for 75 students. That makes up for about 1,400 bags of food over the school year. What we need is 1,400, and and everything I'm about to list now, there might be uh, something in your bulletin, in your worship folder. Uh, There's a table out here. We're going to have info. We're going to keep you updated on how much we've gotten of what things. We're probably going to send out an email as well. But what we need, and all of this stuff is shelf-stable for a year, we need 1,400 applesauce cups, 1,400 breakfast bars, 1,400 granola snack bars, 1,400 fruit snack packs, like, you know, fruit snacks, 1,400 yogurt-covered raisins, 1,400 cheese cracker snack packs, 2,800 instant oatmeal packs, and 2,800 ramen packs. Okay, so for all of those items, 14 to 2,800, what do you think it's going to cost us to put all of those things in bags for an entire year? 5,600 bucks is all we're talking an additional $1,000 will get all of the fresh fruit we need to, add, to supplement to the bags. We need more than just those things. We need people to help pack bags, too, and get them to schools. And so that's the first thing we want to do. We're going to start keeping track. We'll count. You can bring stuff. You can donate to this cause, whatever it is. But we want to feed kids. Did you know that the conversation has already been turned to higher things? 
The end of that meeting, there was a question of, you guys are doing a VBS? Do you have flyers for VBS that I can give to the kids? Because uh, they need something to do this summer. Do you know how hard that is to do through the school district? She took hundreds of them. She heard that we might be doing some other kinds of camps and, and things, and there's some talk about what kind of needs we met. She, she asked us in that meeting, what about coming to the school and doing a parenting class? Yeah, we're going to have to play by the rules, but the little bit we've done in giving food bags at Prospect Point has been heard about, and people asked us for help for physical things, and those physical things are turning into bigger things. So let's do this. It's going to be easy, but there's another opportunity. Friends. We heard about another program that goes on at these, uh, these schools uh, where, you, you, I, what's, what's the program actually called? Walla Walla Friends of Children. You get background checked, you go through a little uh, training course, and then you go once a week to a school and have lunch with a student. They pair you with one student, and you just connect with that student over and over again. We heard about one person, one student this year, who literally begged to be allowed to meet with their friend over the summer. They need, I think about 20 of us would fill the entire need of kids who don't have friends. We're going to try and do a training here, but all you got to do is pass a background check and then show up. Jennifer's already done with hers. I got to do mine. I think as a staff, we're all going to do it um, and, and just go. And so if you want to be a friend and just have a kid with, or have lunch with a kid at a school once a week, we just, we need to know. We have the ultimate answer, and it's not a thing. It's a person. We get to offer people God himself. But sometimes, meeting people's most basic needs leads to conversations of meeting their ultimate needs. And so let's be a church that's faithful to do both. They're talking about turkey trot again. Jamie, I see you sitting there. Got work to do. <laughs> the world, I mean, it's a unique thing. In a world where the church is being seen as less and less helpful to society, our community is asking us for help. Let's go help them. Father, thank you for helping us, for not leaving us alone in our sin, but, but in rescuing us from it by sending your very son, God in the flesh, to redeem us, to have a relationship with us, to forgive us, to bear our iniquities and sins to death on the cross and offer us eternal life. Lord, would you move us to action, uh, a willingness to, be, um, to, to meet basic needs, basic food needs, and even basic relational needs so that we might have conversations that lead to ultimate concerns where we are able to tell people of who you are and what you have done for us. Thank you for meeting us in our need. We ask your favor in all of this for your glory. Amen.